Now, I'm sure you can share this experience with me. I think this is a universal experience, but saying goodbye has a mixture of both pain and blessing. The, the biggest example of this, I think, in my life is when I was 12 years old, um, I grew up in Long Beach, California, same place my whole life. My dad was there. My cousins who were like siblings were there. I'm an only child, but my mom told me, I remember the day, we are moving to Forsyth County, Georgia. Exactly. You have no idea where Forsyth County, Georgia is, right? And I was devastated. I mean, I lived in California. I lived in Los Angeles. There was the beach. There was the mountains. You know, there was the desert if you wanted to go out there. Uh, my, my family was there. I, my friends were there. And I'm told, here, we're going to go move to this place where there's a lot of green and a lot of cows and, and not a lot of any of those things I just mentioned in California. And it was devastating. It was, it was painful. It was one of, the, one of the hardest moments in my life. I, I hated the new place. I hated leaving my dad behind, my family, my friends. And it was painful. It was a struggle. But you know what else happened in that move? Is when I moved to Georgia, I was invited to a church. And in that church, I met Jesus. I heard the gospel. I also met, at the time, a friend. I was 12. She was 13. Now she's my wife. She's back there with my two-year-old son. Right? I made friends that have lasted a lifetime. I sensed a call to, to ministry. And now, here I am this side of it, all these years later, and I can look back at one of the most painful experiences of my life at the time and see, wow, God really used that to bring about blessing. I'm sure you can think of situations that are, are similar, painful. Maybe you're in a painful situation right now and you're wondering, can any good come from this? And the answer to that question is yes. And we know that because in our passage this morning, we're, we're, we're dropping into a section of John, the sixth I am statement, where Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. And it's painful for them. They're confused that this person they've devoted the last three years to is saying he's going to, to leave. And so they're confused and discouraged, and it's in this place, this painful goodbye, that Jesus is giving them a promise that what's coming is going to be better. The blessings of this goodbye, the blessings of this struggle, are far better than the pain you feel right now. Their hearts are, are troubled. That's what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, why, why are their hearts troubled? Well, consider what's just happened. We've got to think back in chapter 13. Jesus has just told the disciples that Judas is going to betray him. And Judas has left. He's left the Last Supper to go betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's confusing to them. This man who's been our brother... He's going to portray our master. He's also told them, guys, soon I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave you. Their hearts are troubled. They love Jesus. They've devoted their life to him. If you, if you have your Bible in front of you, you can look at the end of chapter 13. Simon Peter, verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus 
answered, where I'm going, you can't follow me. So not only is he leaving, but he's saying, you can't come with me, but you will follow me after. And Peter then says, Lord, why can I not follow you? I'll lay down my life for you. That's bold Peter, if you know the the New Testament, right? I'm going to lay down my life for you, Jesus. I'm going to die for the cause. You see, the disciples and Peter thought Jesus is going to come as a military leader and overthrow Rome. And Peter's saying, I will be there with a sword in hand by your side when you take over. And Jesus says, verse 38, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. So think about how this discouraging this must be. Jesus says, I'm leaving. One of their closest friends has left to go betray Jesus. And now Peter's heard, you're not going to stand up for me. By the time this night's over, you're going to deny me three times and completely abandon me. They're shocked and confused in the middle of this goodbye. And it's in this setting that Jesus says, 14 verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. So that's the truth for us this morning. If you're saying, okay, what's the one point of this sermon? I would say 14 verse 1. Do you believe God? Do you believe Jesus in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the struggle? That's the question for us to answer. And then Jesus goes on to give us three compelling reasons to believe in Him. So if you're like me, maybe you like to take notes on your phone or in a a journal or something, or if you just want to know where, it it helps me to know where this sermon's going. We're talking about three blessings of Jesus' departure, three reasons to believe that this is a good thing. And the first one is this. We have a sure future with Christ. Second, we'll see that we have a clear vision of the Father. And then third and finally, we see that we have a divine power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, believe in me and you will have the fullness of God's blessing. A future with Jesus, a vision of the Father, and the Holy Spirit's power. So let's jump in and see. Number one, here's what Jesus is telling. Here's how he's encouraging troubled hearts. First, he says, you have a sure future with me, a sure future with Christ. So he's calling them to believe in him. Because there are blessings that are coming that are going to bring them comfort. He's saying, you don't see it now, but the blessing is coming. And this is what's interesting. He's comforting the disciples, but who's really the one that needs comfort? Jesus is about to be betrayed, abandoned, arrested, beaten, and crucified. He is about to take the weight of the the world's sin upon his shoulders. And he knows what's coming. He's Jesus. He's the one. The disciples should be comforting him. But what is Jesus doing? This is the heart of Jesus for sinners like the disciples and you and me. He is the one right there by their side bringing comfort to them in their moment of trouble. So friend, if, if, if you're in a place where you say, where is Jesus in my moments of confusion and pain and trial? The answer is right here. He is right by the side of his children, longing to comfort you, longing to let you know that though there is pain now, 
there is a future blessing that is coming for you. Right? So how does he do this? Let's consider this. First, he gives them this promise of a future blessing, a dwelling, a dwelling place. Look at verse 2. He says, in my father's house, so don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Here's why. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? What's, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm promising you a future residence in the kingdom of heaven. And that's meant to comfort you right now. That's what Father's house means. He's talking about heaven. Or in the future, we just sang about it, seeing Jesus in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, some people have taken this passage because older translations um, take house and turn it into mansions. And so some people are like, great, I'm getting, you know, forget the little Cape bungalow. I'm having like the six-story mansion with, with, you know, paved gold steps, and that's what's promised to me. And that's reading too far uh, into this here. We don't, we don't know exactly what our dwelling place will, will look like in heaven. There's no, like, angel realtors that are going to, you know, help us pick uh, where we're going to live and on what cul-de-sac we're going to live in. That's not the point here. The point is this. You will have a dwelling place with the God of the universe forever. That's what's coming for those who believe. And I'm going to prepare it for you. And do you know, what, you know what's in that place? Or rather, do you know what's not in that place? There's no pain in that place. There's no suffering in that place. There's no betrayal in that place. There's no heartache. There is the fullness of joy in God's presence forevermore. And Jesus is saying, don't be troubled now. I know it's painful, but think of what's coming. I'm preparing for you a future dwelling place with me. Isaac Watts was a hymn writer. He's written many Christmas hymns. I'm sure you'll sing or hear this season. But in one hymn, he says this about heaven. He says, There I'd find a settled rest while others come and go, or go and come. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. Do you ever feel like a stranger in this world? Right? You, you feel like you, you just don't fit. You feel like it, it, it doesn't seem like you can get settled here, like your heart is longing for something else. That's because you were created for the presence of God in Christ. And Jesus is saying to the troubled hearts of his followers, listen, if you believe in me, that's coming. The fullness of God's presence, a dwelling place in heaven. Think about a moment maybe in the last month or so. Think about a moment when it was so enjoyable, you thought, I wish this would never end. Just get that in your mind for a moment. Maybe it was with a friend or a family member or enjoying a hobby you love, and it was, it was peaceful and it was restful and it was enjoyable, and you had that thought that creeps in from time to time, oh, this is so good. I wish this would never end. Well, friend, eternity with Christ is 10,000 times more enjoyable than your most enjoyable experience. And here's the good news. It will never end. And you won't feel like a stranger in that place. You will be welcomed in like a child. That's the promise for those who believe a sure future with Christ. But then also, he tells them that he's, gonna, he's not only preparing this place, verse 3, I'm also going to come back and I'm going to bring you to this place. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I'm going, you can be also. 
So you might be saying, well, how do I get to this place? He'll tell us that in a moment. But first, Jesus says, you don't have to worry about how to get to there because I'm going to come and I'm going to bring you there. He's saying he's going to return. And right now, what is he doing? He's preparing this place. So you might think, well, well, Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Where are we now in the history of of salvation? Well, now we're at the point where we're, we're waiting for him to come back. Well, what is he doing? He is preparing this place for us. How has he prepared this place for us? He's done it by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Here's what that means. You and I can't get to this place on our own. It's in the presence of God, and we're sinners. But he's saying, I'm going for you to prepare it. How does he do that? He lives the life that you and I couldn't live because we're sinners. He dies the death on the cross that you and I deserve to die, but he died in our place. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. He ascended to the Father's right hand, and he is preparing the place for us. We could never get there on our own, but now Jesus says, here are my brothers and sisters. I can bring them to this future dwelling place. Heaven is promised for those who believe. It's meant to bring comfort here and now. Now he goes on and tells them in verses 4 four to 6, he's, he tells them they already know the way to this place. Right? We're like the disciples. We're thick-headed and we need to be reminded of what we already know, don't we? And this is where we get to this sixth I am statement in fact, as I was reading it, this is one of the most popular statements of Jesus. As I was reading it, I heard someone say it out loud along with me, right? You know where I'm going, verse 4. Then verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, you know the way because I'm standing right here in front of you. Now let's consider that for a moment. Because I think when we hear, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, we think it's just about entering in to relationship with God. And that's true, but it's about so much more than that. So what do these three things mean when Jesus says, you know the way, and that's me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, first, consider the word way. I am the way. This is, this is what people, it's a big word, but they, they would say we're talking about the exclusivity of Christ. That just means there's only one way to go. There's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. If you talk to people, maybe your neighbors or people on the street, how, how, do, you, how do you get to God? How do you get to heaven? How do you have a relationship with God? If they even believe in Him, they'll likely tell you something different than what Jesus is saying here. They'll say, well, Jesus is a way. You know, God's at the top of the mountain and there's a lot of roads that get up there and maybe, you know, Buddha's roads over here or, uh, you know, or, you know, Islam's on this side and then Jesus and Christianity are down here. And as long as you get on one of those roads, you'll get to the top. You'll find your way to God. Is that what Jesus says? No. He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. There is no way to know God the Father. There is no way to have a relationship with the God of the universe, except through Jesus Christ. But you know, there's another way we sort of misunderstand this as well. Because I think there's a lot of people who say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe He's the only way. But then, they say, here's how I get to know Him. i got to work really, really hard. i got to be a really good person. 
I've got to obey every command he tells me to. And then if I'm good enough, then Jesus will let me get to God. Do you realize what that's saying, though? That's saying that Jesus is not the only way. That's saying that I'm the way. If I just do enough good things, then I can get to God. No, Jesus is saying me. And what he means here is trust and faith in Christ alone is the way to have a relationship with God. Not by following some other path, some other world religion, and certainly not by trying to earn your salvation. Only Jesus. He's the way. I think of the signs as we came in here this morning. It's my first time here. I didn't know where I was going. You know how I knew where to park? Because someone, whoever it was, thank you, put out like four or five A-frame signs. Thank you. (laughs) I knew where to go because the arrows were telling me where to go. Jesus is saying here, do you want to know how to get to heaven? Do you want to know how to know God and the joy of his presence? It's me. It's by believing in me. But he's also the truth. This means that Jesus is the one who reveals God. If you want to know what God the Father looks like, where should you look? You should look to Jesus. John has already said this multiple times. This is the theme of his book. John 1.17 says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then in verse 18 he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him the Father known. Jesus reveals God. He is the truth of who God is. And then he is the life. He's the life. He's talking about abundant, joy-filled life here. And friend, please listen to me. Though we are talking about the future, and though there is coming a day when pain and sorrow and suffering and sin will end for those who believe, that does not mean that we wait for abundant life to begin till then. Trusting in Jesus means abundant, joy-filled life begins here and now, right? You can know the God of the universe through Jesus. John 1.4 says, In Jesus is life, and life was the light of man. John 11 says, He's the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in Him will never die. Though your body will die, you will be resurrected to be with Jesus forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And here's what we need to hear this morning. Here's how we're like the disciples. That truth might be so familiar with us that we've lost sight of what it means. And so Jesus says, not just to Thomas and Philip, He says to you and me, you already know, I am right here. So if you're wondering, I'm, I don't, what is the way of salvation? What is the way to know God? Jesus is reminding us through John 14 this morning. I am right here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can know God except through me. So believe in Him. And it's so encouraging to us because we're like the disciples. We're so often confused and discouraged and anxious about what the future holds. But what does Jesus do? He meets us right in the midst of that discouragement and that struggle and that pain. So it's supposed to both correct us. Maybe you're here and you've been looking for for other ways to know God. Maybe you're here and you've been seeking life elsewhere. Jesus' words are meant to correct you and bring you on track, but it's also meant to encourage you because maybe you've been hoping in Jesus, but you wonder, is is it really making a difference? And the answer is yes, absolutely. 
It might seem long, but you know what the, the Apostle Paul calls our present sufferings as Christians? He says they're a light and momentary affliction compared to the weight of glory that's coming to us. So be encouraged. We have in Christ a sure future with Jesus. And then secondly, we see that we have a clear vision of the Father. Now look at verse 7. This is, he goes on to say, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. This, is, this could be a, a confusing verse, because Jesus is saying, if you would have known me, you would, you would know that I'm the way and the truth and the life. But then he says, now you do know me, so now you know. So which one is it? Do the disciples know him, or do they not know him? Right? And then even back in verse 5, we, we see Thomas ask, Lord, we don't know. <laughs> so which one is it? Thomas is like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus is like, you should know, and now you do know. And there's still, Philip in the next verse is like, uh, we don't know what's going on. So what, what is Jesus really saying here? And I think we can relate to this. You can know somebody without knowing somebody, right? I can say I know Tom Brady. I don't know if that's sensitive or not because he's gone, but I'm a baseball guy, so I can say I know Big Poppy. I don't know Big Poppy. I know of him. I can point him out. Right? I can tell you some stats but I don't actually know him. I think that's what Jesus is hinting at here. You guys know me because you've been with me for three years. But you don't know me. You don't know that I am the way to the Father. Or else you wouldn't be asking these kinds of questions. So they knew Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. Does that make sense? Some of us can know about Jesus without having a close and meaningful relationship with Jesus. So Philip then goes on in verse 8, and he asks a question. He still doesn't get it. He says, Lord, show us the Father. Now remember what he's already said. I am the way to the Father. I've revealed the Father to you. Philip still doesn't get it. So he says, show us the Father and it is enough for us. So even this close proximity to Jesus, all these three years, they still don't get it. You can come to church for years and still not know Jesus. You can have Bibles on your shelf and still not know Jesus. You can grow up in a Christian home and still not know Jesus. And still not have that relationship with him. So Philip asks this question and reveals that. And it's actually a really good question. Here's what he's saying. Jesus, we want to see the glory of God. That's a good desire. That's a really good desire. That's something we all pursue. You might not realize that. But when you pursue your greatest joy, when you're looking for satisfaction in life, whether it's a career or a relationship or money or whatever it may be, that is because you have been created to pursue glory. Right? So Philip is asking this question, show us the glory of God. It's very similar to what happens in the Old Testament, in the story, uh, in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, God's appointed leader of the people of Israel, he asks to see the glory of God. So God has been speaking to him, uh, but, but not, not fully face to face. So finally Moses prays this bold prayer. He's saying, God, show me your glory. And I'm going to paraphrase how God responds. He essentially says, Moses, you're a sinner, and I'm the holy God of the universe. You cannot see me. You can't see my glory, because no man shall see God and live. Sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to carve this cleft in a rock. I'm going to 
carve out this hole in a rock in, in the side of this mountain. And I'm going to put you in that mountain and I'm going to pass by. And then after I leave, you can see sort of the afterglow of my glory. It's a real, real strange thing, right? But the point is the holiness of God cannot be in man's sinful presence or they will not live. It would destroy Moses. So God does that and he sees the, the afterglow of God's glory. Even Moses, one of the greatest followers of God who has ever lived, in all his holiness, he could not see the glory of God. Yet here Philip is saying, I'm praying the same prayer Moses asked for. I want to see glory. And notice what he says in verse 8. It's enough for us. I would be satisfied if I could see the glory of God. And then Jesus responds in verse 9. He says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Hear what Jesus is saying? You've been right here. You've seen my miracles. You've heard me teach. I have been revealing the Father, but you have not recognized it. You're looking for satisfaction, and you don't realize that it's right in front of you. R.C. Sproul comments on this and says, if there's any place in Scripture where Jesus, we see Jesus almost becoming impatient and annoyed and irritated with his disciples, it's in this place. Now notice he said almost, right? But imagine, he's been teaching, I'm the way, I show the Father. And they're like, what? can you show us the Father? He's like, I've been showing you this. So it's a rebuke of his disciples, but it's a patient and loving rebuke. He rebukes them in love when he says, you should know this. I've been revealing the Father to you. Why would you ask me this question? He does this because he loves them. He rebukes them in love and he's reminding them of what he's already declared. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Here's what he's saying. The answer that you're looking for, Philip, is hidden in plain sight. And here's what we're meant to see in these verses. We're to see ourselves in Philip. How many of us are looking for satisfaction? How many of us are, are saying, if you would just show me financial security, it would be enough. Then I'd be satisfied. Or show me a good, stable career and it would be enough. Then I'd be satisfied. Or a life of physical pleasure and comforts. Then I'll be satisfied. Then it'll be enough. Or, or this perfect relationship. Then it will be enough. Friends, these are wonderful gifts from God. All those things I just mentioned. But they're terrible substitutes for the pleasure of knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What Jesus tells Philip is, listen, the problem is not that you're looking for satisfaction. The problem is not that you're looking for what's enough. The problem is that you don't recognize that it's found in Jesus. Right? That informs everything else we do. And then we see, if we read the rest of the New Testament, this, this is answered for us. The Apostle Paul talks about how Philip's prayer and Moses' prayer and our prayer for glory, for satisfaction, for what's enough is answered in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God said, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light and knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying the purpose you were created for, the satisfaction you're looking for, is found only in Jesus. 
You see how that's meant to bring us comfort in moments of trial? Because all those other things, your career, your, your money, your relationships, all of them could fade away in an instant. But the one thing that will last for eternity, a relationship with God in Christ, can never be taken away. That gives us strength to endure when our hearts are troubled here and now. It's also a reminder for, for all of us, friends, that being close to spiritual things, proximity, does not mean you've actually seen the glory of God. This encourages us to search our souls. It's important to be in church on Sunday mornings, yes, but just coming to a building does not mean we know Jesus. Just coming to a Bible study or knowing Christian friends does not mean we know Jesus. Jesus is like that friend that you find out has, all of a sudden you find out that he's a, a billionaire because he's inherited this from his father. Right? You didn't know it all along, but finally he says, oh, by the way, I just inherited a billion dollars. And you're like, what? Uh, uh, what? And he's like, by the way, I want to share it with you. What would you do if that happened? That's your best friend, Right? You'd stick close to him. So Jesus is saying, listen, I am here right in front of your eyes. For those of you who look for satisfaction and joy that will never fade, it's found in me. Right? So we have a sure future with Christ in Jesus. We also have a clear vision of the Father. And third and finally, he goes on to tell us we have a divine power of the Spirit. So he's sort of corrected his disciples now, encouraged them. He's saying, listen, don't worry, I'm preparing a place for you. You have that future. I'm revealing the Father to you, and He is enough. And, by the way, you have work to do after I leave. That's this third point. This is more active. He's telling us, here's what's going to happen for believers. Look at verse 12. This, is, this has been considered a tough text to, to reflect on what it means. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, a lot of very smart people have written a lot of books on what this verse, is, this verse means. Some would say, okay, that means Christians are going to do greater miracles than Jesus. I would say that's not what he's saying here. One, because he uses this word works in a number of different ways the Apostle John does, not just about miracles. But second, I don't know that I've ever, I know that I've never seen a, a, a greater miracle than one Jesus has committed, right? Can God work miracles today? Sure, absolutely, it's his prerogative. But no one's raised someone deader than Lazarus, you know what I'm saying? Like there's not somebody like, oh, that was greater because there was Lazarus who was dead, and then this guy's like dead, dead. Or can God heal? Absolutely. But none of these uh, healings we may see today are greater than the works of Jesus. So what is Jesus talking about here? And here's what I want to submit to you. The greater works here are the spirit-empowered works of proclaiming the gospel and seeing people saved from their sins. Here's, here's why I would say that. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples. If you've heard this story, maybe you're familiar with it. He sends them out, and they, they cast out demons. They're doing ministry. They're amazed at the miracles. And they come back, and they're like shocked at the power they have through Christ. Like, Jesus, listen to what we did. We've cast out demons. They're trembling in fear of us. And you know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say yes. 
Those are the greater works you're going to do. You know what he says in Luke 10, 20? He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you hear what, do you hear what Jesus says? He says, you know what's greater than the sick being healed? Though that's incredible. Do you know what's greater than casting out demons? The greater thing is when a soul is saved from sin and hell and redeemed into the family of God. There is nothing greater than that. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, you will do greater works after I leave. And how does that happen? Because he sends his Holy Spirit and it fills these timid, troubled disciples and they go proclaim the gospel. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, there's 120 Christians. That's it. After Jesus ascends. Then the Holy Spirit fills them and they preach the gospel. Peter preaches his first sermon and in a day, 3,000 just men were counted. I would say, you could say probably 6,000 or more are, are added to the church. They believe the gospel. That's a greater work. You read throughout the book of Acts as Christians are scattered. The church continues to grow and grow, and not just numerically, but geographically. When Jesus ascended into heaven, this ministry was just a hub around Jerusalem. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you know where the book of Acts ends? It ends in, with Paul in Rome, which was the end of the known world at the time. That's a greater work. People being saved. The spirit-empowered work of the church that has not stopped. Do you know how I know? Because here we are now. In 2021, worshiping Jesus at a, a new church that wasn't here two years ago. Because the spirit fills his people and gives them a divine power to take the gospel to those around them. And you know that the disciples' hearts were encouraged because these once timid Struggling disciples became bold men on mission for the gospel. You read the book of Acts. Men and women are taking the gospel boldly to those around them. And friends, this is our work. When we have that sure future with Christ, and we have that clear vision of the Father, and we have this power of the Holy Spirit, we will live on mission. This is so encouraging to be talking about this at a brand new church plant. We talk about the church this way in Waltham. Here's the definition if someone says, what is the church? We say, the church is the beloved and redeemed people of God, filled with the presence of God, that's the Holy Spirit, set apart for the purpose of God, that's his mission, in the world around us. Friends, that's you and I. That is Seven Mile Road, Hyannis. You are filled with the divine power of the Holy Spirit to take the good news of Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life to those around you. So if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, just know that there's no bait and switch. We're not hiding this. My desire would be that you believe the gospel. That's the whole reason Christians are still left on earth. You realize that? Why didn't Jesus just beam us straight up to heaven? Because God has greater works for us to do, of taking the gospel to those who don't believe. So if you're here and you're not a believer, let me plead with you, as the Apostle Paul does to those at Corinth, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Believe in Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. And this promise is yours. And for those of us who are Christians, this should encourage us. 
out of that discouragement and troubled hearts to say, oh, we have a purpose here. We have a a mission. Who in your life needs to hear the gospel message? Who in your life needs to hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Think about this. I heard Rosaria Butterfield, the author, say once, God didn't get your address wrong. Where do you live? What neighbors has God placed around you who are not believers? Where do you work? What co-workers can you befriend and, and love them and show hospitality so that they may meet Christ? What hobbies has God given you? How can you think about that as a spirit-filled mission? And then he ends by telling us, as we close, here's how we go about this work. Verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, that doesn't mean like, oh, I want a red Ferrari. So I'm going to pray really hard and God's going to give me a red Ferrari. No, that's not what it means. Hear the context here. He's saying, disciples, you're going to go out and live on mission. And as you do so, you need to pray. Because sinners repenting and trusting in Jesus, that's not something you can make happen. So ask anything in my name. It means according to God's will, and I will accomplish my will through you. Church, as you go about the spirit-filled mission of taking Jesus the way, the truth, and the life to others, you need to do it praying. I've heard it said before, you should talk to God about your non-Christian friends and family before you talk to them about God. Pray for them. But also you should trust. Notice he says in verse 14, I will do it. Not you will do it. Jesus will do it. This is his work through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a patient trust. Friends, listen. Church planning is tough work. Sharing the gospel with people who don't believe is tough work. Don't overestimate what can be done in three months, six months, and one year. Don't overestimate that. And don't underestimate what can be done in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Trust the Lord as you go about this work. Do you know the favorite New Testament illustration for mission and church planting? It's agriculture. Mark 4. He sows the seed and then he goes to sleep. The Lord gives it growth and he knows not how. Don't be discouraged when this work of mission seems slow. Trust the Lord for the long haul. And then lastly, obey. Pray, trust, and obey. The next verse, verse 15, says simply, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You think of that hymn chorus, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Friends, you see this blessing of Jesus' goodbye? Let's, as we leave, let's believe that we have a sure future with Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's see through Jesus this clear, satisfying vision of God the Father. And then, let's be filled up with the Holy Spirit to go out and do His work.